I never shared a lot about my family and I would often hear others talk about like, oh yeah, I had a family vacation and you know, I, I went on this trip or, oh, my children are attending this school and, and, and then, you know, I would always just like remain very quiet and like, unless they deliberately asked, I would never share. Because the truth is, my family wasn't taking family trips and family vacations. Like, my mom was a single mom, like, working two jobs just to support her three kids and her mom and her and her younger sister. Like, you know, these were two single women that were leading, you know, like, trying to, serve, you know, keep a family alive. And my mom didn't speak the language, so we were very poor. And so I was, I wasn't ashamed of it, but I was like, I guess you could say I was a little embarrassed about it. So yeah, I didn't, I wouldn't share things like that. That was a clip from today's episode. I really hope you're enjoying it so far. Before we get into the full episode, just want to give a big shout out to you all for listening. Just want to say thank you and welcome to the King Tueres podcast brought to you by Plural. Today's special guest includes Natalia, who is a proud and orgullosa Latina who was born in El Salvador. In this episode, you'll hear all about how her passions around diversity, inclusion, equality all come to life in not only her story, but also in the work that she does. Currently, Natalia works at Opportunity at Work, whose company mission is to rewire the labor market so that all stars can work, learn, and earn their full potential. Now, STARS is one of the most fire acronyms that I've probably heard. It stands for people that are skilled through alternative routes. And you'll hear how Natalia's life really comes full circle from her upbringing to the work that she does in this episode. All right, let's get to it. And I did get a chance to listen to a couple of episodes, so I'm on board. <laughs> Which one? Which one did you listen to? Uh, the, the very last one, and then I just heard some clips. Um, so I think the very last one was with, um, uh, you were talking about code switching. Uh, is that the one, was that Sasha? Yes, Sasha. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sasha, that's the homie. Yes. Yeah. She said some really, really like resonant things. So I was like, okay, I, I feel it. Yeah. It's so funny because Sasha, after she was like, I was bad, wasn't I? I hope I said something good. I was like, girl, you were dropping some bars. Yeah, and I mean, it's about like authenticity, right? So like her yeah, perspective yeah. was just like that, like it was that, it was her perspective. So yeah, I could resonate with certain things and then other things I was like, huh, I never thought of it, of it in that way or I've never experienced it in that way. So, you know, it really like made me think about uh, my own experiences, so. What, what came up to, what came up for you when you were listening to it? Um, well, you know, she was talking about her experience at work and, um, if I remember correctly, it was about, um, just how much, uh, she's, I, 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 like, there was something else also about like, um, trauma. That's what it was. It was about trauma that she was saying that, you know, our trauma, um, adds another layer of who we are and sometimes we identify with the trauma and then we have to remove that layer in order to like be truly authentic and mm -hmm. so you know that would have been such a great discussion to have because in my opinion I was just like I understand what she's what she's trying to get at and I also believe that 
that trauma shapes who we are. And so if we are trying to get to our true authentic self, like we, it, it's not about dismissing that trauma or ignoring the trauma. It's about like redefining how that trauma has, you know, built our character, right? So it's just another layer um, or another perspective to think about how trauma shapes who we are and how we use that for both good and bad in how we behave and interact with others. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I mean, as far as, you know, maybe we can start with, you know, the typical question I ask everyone when we start the episode is, you know, when you hear about being your authentic self or people tell you to be your authentic self, what comes up to you? It, it could be sort of just like learning from your trauma or it could just be anything else, but you know, just what, what situations or what words come up, to, come up for you when you hear that phrase? So for me, when I think about authenticity and like defining our authentic selves, I think about um, how much of a learning process that is, like because we are constantly evolving as individuals. So like to be authentic is just acknowledging that we're going through a human process of discovering our purpose, discovering our truths, you know, unpacking our histories, our traumas, our, you know, even our, our culture and heritage. So when we arrive at the finish line, which is, you know, at the end when we're like ready to transcend out of this earth, like I think that's when we reach our peak authenticity because we have lived that life and we have defined that life at the end. But until we get there, to be authentic is just to acknowledge that we're humans still experiencing life and discovering who we are and what our purpose is. So you're telling me I'm not going to be myself until I'm 90? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're going to be a version of yourself, but could you say that that's your authentic self? Because I feel like it's, it's on a very like soul level that I think about who we are authentically. Like we can be authentic in many ways when we're talking about like, you know, having our convictions, our, our guiding values, our morals. Um, we can remain authentic to those beliefs, but also those beliefs evolve in time, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, that's like, there is a layer that you can be authentic in your everyday life. But if you, but when I think about authenticity for me, I think about like what my soul is and who my soul is and, and that is what I think I'm not going to arrive at until you know I'm on my deathbed <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's fair I mean there's also a level of fuck it like as you get older as well like you give less fucks as you get older around like what people think try to impress people um so that makes sense as well I'm sure there's like some sort of graph around like age level of fucks and like yeah. the more authentic you are and something like that right full circle right because when you're born you don't give a fuck either yeah child, you don't have all of that conditioning all of that programming so it's almost like you're going full circle to like your authentic self when you were born and when you you know pass away or before you pass away so i don't mean to be so grim but you know it is no no nah, nah, that that's really interesting babies and, and elderly god those are goals right there and then um <laughs> What about, I mean, talk to me a little bit about that as far as like, um, I mean, not when you were like born, but <laughs> just like growing up, like how was, exactly was, was, what was doing. <laughs> no, what? no, I said, I remember exactly what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talk to me a little bit about that as far as your upbringing and your relationship with authenticity. Was that always encouraged? Were you 
you feel like you were told to be a certain person? Because I mean, there's just so many cultural norms, especially for women, um, Latinas, right, around like how they should act and, and how they should behave. So what, what was that like growing up? For sure. Um, so I mean, the earliest memory that I have about um, authenticity is, you know, around the time I was like three or four years old. I was born in El Salvador and I was growing up there until I was about six and we moved to the States. But um, during that time, I remember, uh, you know, telling my mom, mom, I don't want to wear pants. I don't want to wear shorts. Like I can only wear dresses and skirts. And it was because I was very like femme. Like I wanted to be this like super feminine, like dainty thing. And so I remember, and, and that was always like how I was, um, like that's what I was known for, you know, even from a very young age, like I was the one who always wanted to be very dressed up and with accessories and, you know, that's not changed in my entire life. Um, but then, you know, when I moved to the United States and I, you know, as a six-year-old trying to assimilate and integrate, um, you know, we first lived in New York and, and that experience was, it wasn't as challenging for me because I remember attending a school that was very diverse and, you know, I was in a um, bilingual class. So, you know, everyone I could relate to, even though, you know, it was the first time where I was like meeting Dominicans and meeting Puerto Ricans. But when I moved to Providence, which is where I live now, um, I attended an elementary school that was like in the backyard of Brown University and uh, RISD, you know, the Rhode Island School of Design. And so there weren't many people that looked like me in that school. And so, you know, I was seven, eight years old. And I remember just feeling like an outsider. And so when, you, you know, we talk about authenticity, like it was in those moments when I began to sort of redefine who I was in a way that wasn't authentic so that I could fit in so that I could feel like I belonged and that I could relate. And so as an example, I don't know if some of my friends might be hearing this for the first time, but when I was um, roughly like second, third grade, I remember telling everyone that I was Dominican and I'm not, I'm, I was born in El Salvador. And the closest thing to being Dominican in my family was my aunt who has a Dominican dad. And so, she was half Salvadorian, half Dominican, and we, we were living together. So it was almost like by osmosis, I like <laughs> became her, uh, her identity. And so I, I, I would tell people that. And it was because the handful of, you know, Spanish speaking students at that school were Dominican. And so, you know, I, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to fit in with them. And I just felt like that was the best way for me to gain some degree of acceptance, even though I still very much felt like an outsider because I didn't really speak the language and, you know, I, I was, I was new to American culture. Wow. That is, <laughs> that's such a powerful confession, if you will. You know what I mean? Just like, and, and it's crazy because a lot of times they say, oh, but you're surrounded by Latinos. You know what I mean? Uh, but in a lot of ways, you know, there are so many countries within Latin America, and then you add the Caribbean, right? So even if you're around a bunch of Latinos, there is a sense of almost like segregation, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Where, um, you know, there's Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, and then you're from El Salvador, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that, that's crazy. Um, what was that? 
what was that like when you were saying that? Did it feel like you were sort of like just hiding your your roots or did you just feel like at that at that point you didn't really think about it you just wanted to be you know part of a group just what was that like i was so young that i didn't think about the repercussions or like how long do i live this lie <laughs> yeah and how long did you live that lie yeah well the funny thing is is that providence and you know it's a pretty small town you know um like it's a city but it's it always has that like provincial feeling because it's one of those places that like everyone knows everyone everyone attended the same school and like the degree of separation is probably like three or two degrees instead of six and so um i as a child i had no idea that this was going to be the case right in my in in, in my older years and so as i started to go to middle school and then high school like I was then living with guilt because I remember thinking they're going to find out that I lied and it never really came up um, truthfully, but um, even up until high school and, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of, you know, friends from very diverse backgrounds, like Southeast Asian, you know, obviously Latino, black, um, but I still, I still felt marginalized at times. And like, for instance, my friends would, you know, crack jokes and be like, oh, you know, like you're Mexican or not that that's detrimental, but for them, like it was. And um, things like, you know, holding a cookout, like, what are you grilling beans? <laughs> Which, you know, so I always felt justified in my lie, even though I was guilty because I was just like, but yeah, like even as a child, I, I mean, I couldn't have foreshadowed that I'd be bullied or, you know, that I would, people would crack jokes about where, where I'm from or, you know, make assumptions about where I'm from simply because I look different. But to some degree, like it was justified and, and, you know, how would I have known? It didn't even matter. Like I still felt that way as in, you know, as a high schooler. Yeah. I mean, that, that's so natural though. I mean, I, I feel like I talk about this a lot on, on the podcast, but I feel like a lot of times we suppress parts of our identity and we act like someone else just because we want to be part of a group. And that's biological. You know what I mean? Like that feeling isn't necessary. I feel like, I feel like that feeling is shared by everybody. Um, and that is like across gender, sex, culture, like just as humans, we want to be part of a group. So it makes sense. Um, and to be honest, like, you know, who knows, I probably would have done that too if I wasn't surrounded by um, Dominicans, you know, tell me about that feeling too, when you sort of, came out and said y'all I'm not Dominican or did you do this on like a Facebook post like what how did you how'd you bring this to the world I never actually did that um there was is this the is this the time when people find out <laughs> maybe but also <laughs> but not really like okay. I, I would say there wasn't a big you know moment of revelation because um by the time that I became an adult and you know so many people had like comment like came and went from my life like it didn't it didn't feel important anymore because ultimately like any new people or new friends that I made um I, I did finally reach a point where I was just like I'm 100% Salvadorian and I'm proud of it you know but it has to take me a while to get there and so now people know I'm from El Salvador um and I don't pretend that I'm anything else but um you know I, I still have that like shadow lurking in the background that like reminds me that at one point I wasn't saying that proudly, you know, I, I was pretending. And so, yeah, I mean, 
the people who might hear this today may, may be shocked at the fact that I did lie at some point, but they wouldn't be shocked to know that, you know, I'm actually Salvadorian like, because I am, and they know that. <laughs> yeah, they were like, what? She wasn't Dominican? She was killing the bachata. I swore she was. <laughs> <laughs> I was the lamest. <laughs> <laughs> Salsa, please. I can't even. Um, that's, that's another conversation about, like, just how authentic my... Um, Latino side is because I still can't dance. <laughs> oh, let's let's talk about it. Yeah, what what are what are those conversations like? Is it, does it come from your family, friends? Like, what is that? <laughs> um. Well, you know, it's it's funny because when I began to embrace my culture you know when I started to say like yeah you know I'm proud that I'm from El Salvador and like we have these certain customs in my family or traditions and um. <clears throat> I still, because I grew up in America, like I still very much feel like I'm not 100% Salvadorian because there's so much that I'm missing. Like so much that I missed out on having grown up here. Like the last time I visited El Salvador, I was 11 years old. And even, you know, with my extended family who is still there or even extended family who lives in the United States, um, we're not very close. We like, kind of spread out throughout the country. And so it just, you know, becomes hard to stay in touch. And so with my immediate family here in Rhode Island, um, we've adapted so much to American culture that there's still pieces of like that true authentic Salvadorian, um, you know, heritage that is missing. So for me, I've just now looked at like, how else can I get back to my roots? And how else can I learn to identify? Because even when I see things on like social media about like being proud and Latino, like I hear things all the time that I'm like, I can't relate to that. I never experienced that, you know? Um, so th there's still this like very gray area in, in my identity as a Latina, as a Salvadorian that I'm still trying to like color in because I'm not, like I need to discover those parts. That that makes sense. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really talk to many people about this, but I have this, you know, people always ask me like, oh, do you want to have kids one day? And you know, complicated subject. Ask my therapist about that. But uh, <laughs> um, I mean, like there there's some thoughts that come up. One of them is like I didn't I didn't grow up with my father. He was there, you know, in some ways, but like physically present. My mom and him weren't together. So I didn't grow up with him. So I feel like I didn't have like a, I mean, my grandfather's my consistent father figure, but you know, I, I won't lie. Like I have those thoughts around like, will I be a good father, et cetera, right? But something else that always comes up is I have this fear that I'm not gonna be able to give my child the Dominican culture that they need to feel Dominican. Mm. You know what I mean? And I And again, this could just be like a story that I make up in my head, but it's such a big fear and like I even have a fear of like my grandfather has passed away but I still have my grandma and to me like obviously I love her for so many reasons but like I feel like if when she passes away like there's so much culture that leaves with her and like I feel that like I can't carry that on you know what I mean I don't know like there, it, that, that may just be like pressure I put on myself but I don't know if you like feel that sort of pressure as well I can actually um so, you know, the closest relationship with a grandparent that I've had is with my maternal grandmother. Um, 
who lives here in Rhode Island and she now has um, Alzheimer's and dementia. So, you know, I think about that every day because I think about, wow, I, there were so many conversations that I could have had that I didn't, that now I wish I had because it would have told me so much about my history, my culture, even just like, you know, this, the stories of like, like learning about my great grandparents and learning about that. Like, I don't know that much about it. And so there was a time when I thought, you know, I'd, I'd travel to El Salvador and try to like explore my roots and, and talk to people. Um, and I think I still might someday, but you know, I, I, I do think about how much I'm missing out on and I missed out on by not having those conversations earlier. And so I also think about that and how it's going to translate to my own children if I ever have any, because it's like, what am I going to tell them about who they are and where they come from? You know, like for me, that story starts with me and I wish it didn't. I wish I could go back generations and understand like my family tree. Um, and because of, you know, I haven't been to El Salvador. I haven't, I, I don't even know where to, I wouldn't even know where to begin to recover that. I mean, there's still time. I mean, I'm, I'm saying all this, but at the same time, you know, it's important to recognize that everyone's Latinidad is different. You know what I mean? Like, just because I don't speak the best Spanish doesn't mean I'm any less Dominican. You know what I mean? Like, just because I'm not born over there. Oh, my God. <laughs> my kitty. Yeah, for those that are listening, uh, the cat just popped up out of nowhere. I was like, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> but no, I do, I do think about that. And no, but it's important to recognize, like, just because you don't dance salsa or bachata doesn't make you any less, you know, Latino or Latina. But it is important to also recognize some of those feelings, right? Because people don't talk about those things. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when you spoke about assimilation, you know, we spoke about a little bit, you assimilating to like US culture, right? Um, and a lot of it was like going to school, what about when you started um, in like corporate America, quote unquote, like, do you remember your first internship or your first full-time job? Cause corporate America is just like a whole nother culture. Like, what was that like? And you know, how did you assimilate into that or did you not assimilate? Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, that was always the goal, right? It was to assimilate and to, you know, feel validated in your own experiences. So I started my first corporate job, I was um, working at Bank of America. And that was for me like the training ground for every job that I held since then, because it like in a corporate setting. And you know, it was back then we would make fun of the fact that like Bank of America felt like a cult, <laughs> if you will, because like they just, as soon as you, you started, they began to train you and like their culture is just really strong. And so, and that's like the most corporate of the most corporate banking. It's such an old school industry. Right, exactly. So that's why I say like, in many ways, I look back and feel traumatized by that experience. But then I also like actually am very grateful for that experience because it, it taught me so much about how to navigate um, corporate culture, about how to, you know, um, stand out in a corporate setting, how to like conduct myself and, um, and you know, for a lot of a lot of people today will actually be surprised to learn that I don't have a college degree, and like the furthest that I got in college was attending a um, technical school for interior design of all things. So I have no you know corporate like 
professional, like traditional training um, from a from a four year institution. Um, and so, but you know, a lot of people will be surprised to learn that. And I always say, well, it's because of my experience at Bank of America that really taught me, and just being able to be observant and to you know really just trial by fire understand like what it's going to take to succeed and thrive in that kind of setting um especially if it's like a for-profit when we know like that's typically very cutthroat and you know people are, are stepping over each other to get ahead um so i had to learn to adapt really really quickly to that um and i started as a customer success associate or customer support um associate and then i like worked my way up to you know working in hr as a recruiter um, so yeah, I mean, I, I would say during that time though, like I definitely suppressed things about my Latinidad that I felt were going to hinder my progress, um, or yeah, my acceptance within that group. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, what are some things that you felt like you had to suppress? I mean, for one, I, I, I never really spoke a lot about my family, you know, like, I never shared a lot about my family and I would often hear others talk about like, oh yeah, I had a family vacation and you know, I, I went on this trip or, oh, my children are attending this school and, and, and then, you know, I would always just like remain very quiet and like, unless they deliberately asked, I would never share because the truth is my family wasn't taking family trips and family vacations. Like my mom was a single mom, like, working two jobs just to support her three kids and her mom and her and her younger sister like you know these were two single women that were leading you know like trying to serve you know keep a family alive and my mom didn't speak the language so we were very poor and so I was I wasn't ashamed of it but I was like I guess you could say I was a little embarrassed about it so yeah I didn't I wouldn't share things like that um you know, things like when, you know, people would talk about school, for instance, you know, like we attended a public school and, you know, finally when my uh, stepbrother and stepsister were born, you know, their dad was able to afford pl placing them in a private school. And then I, I would reveal that or like I would volunteer that information because now I felt like, hey, this is something that I can actually show that is similar to you know, this other counterparts experience, like, we're not as poor as you think, you, you know, or whatever the case is, like, it was all in my head. But um, yeah, that I would say, like, for the most part, I just kept really, uh, like, I was very reserved um, about that. How, how do you think that impacted your ability to build relationships? Because I imagine if, like, you don't engage in those conversations, unless they explicitly ask you, then you know, you're not able to build that connection, right? And then you potentially, at least this will happen to me, or like this will happen to me early on, is like, I don't establish that connection. Then when the crew goes out for beers, then I'm not invited, right? Because I didn't share that initial information that led to that conversation, that led to that relationship. Um, and that's just my experience, but I'm wondering, did you have anything similar as far as, you know, the challenges of building those relationships? Because ultimately what I've seen too is that, you know, to some extent we all have the same skills, right? Like everyone on the team knows how to do Excel or whatever the skill is, right? What really gets you ahead is really building those relationships with senior leadership and the people on your team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny enough, like, that you bring that up because early on in my career, I was, um, I was so determined to succeed in my career and getting ahead 
that the relationships that I built were with like upper level management. And so when, but that meant that in the setting that I was in, because at some point I had, you know, I was an entry level employee that had many peers at that same level. Once I started to, you know, surpass them, I became ostracized by them or I ostracized myself even because I was building certain relationships. And then I remember, you know, like a particular instance when as a team leader, I, you know, mentioned to a, a colleague, a, a team member that, you know, she was out of adherence. And, you know, what that meant was that, you know, she wasn't keeping to her schedule and that she needed to like stick to her schedule. And, you know, that was my job, but she, you know, we were like, before I was promoted to the team lead role, like she and I were peers, we would sit side by side, take the calls together. And then the moment that I like mentioned to her that, you know, you're out of adherence and I'm sorry, like, I can't give you this exception. Um, she stopped, you know, talking to me, like she would give me the cold shoulder. And like, all of a sudden it was like, I caught an attitude from her all the time. And, and, you know, I didn't really try to rectify it. Because in my mind at the time, I thought, well, I'm just doing my job. Like, this is my job and I'm going to do it well because this is how I'm going to get ahead. But I wasn't thinking about like the relationship, the interpersonal relationship that I either had to conserve or, you know, rec uh, restore um, because at one point we were peers. And like, you know, she's one of those people that like now and again, I like see her like, around town and I'm just like, oh, I wonder if she still hates me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I will say that over time, you know, as I've matured and, and as I've had more and more experiences, like I, I do um, make an effort. And I think also because the landscape has changed and there's just so much more inclusion. And I, I know we're not where we should be, but you know, I've had the, the, the fortune of working for very diverse organizations where like a lot of my peers and even upper level management are m much more diverse. I have felt more comfortable in peeling back those layers and being more forthcoming and in building relationships with all types of people, you know, not just the ones that I think are going to get me ahead or the ones that I think that I can relate to better or that I need to impress. Um, so I think, you know, over time, I've definitely learned from those very early like <laughs> trials. That's so funny that you use the word, you know, building relationships with not only people that will help me get ahead, which sounds like, you know, <laughs> it sounds like you just built those relationships just because you wanted to succeed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just wanted to move up. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, let me make a friendship because this person makes me feel comfortable or whatever. <laughs> right. I wasn't, I wasn't about the small talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, you got a goal. You know what I mean? I get it. Yeah. You know, which in the end, like kind of bit me in the butt because like with, you know, certain people, like I, I was like very intimidating or, I mean, I've had so many issues in, in, in my work settings where like people have felt intimidated or have felt threatened because I've been such a like determined go-getter. And, you know, I'm learning that about myself that like that interpersonal human layer is just as important um so it's not building relationships to get ahead but it's just building relationships to you know um to to establish um you know teamwork but also like on an, on an even deeper level to establish like a mutual respect with those that are 
part of your organization. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Establishing that mutual respect is, is, is a great way to put just those relationships. Um, talk to me a little bit about like working at in a banking industry, right? In those jobs and what sort of influence that company culture had on the way that you just view professionalism as a whole. Uh, and when I think of Bank of America, I think of my grandfather back in the day, like that was my earliest example of what like a professional should look like, quote unquote. Like he would always tell me, shave, um, do you see, do you see um, CEOs with tattoos and do you see CEOs yeah. dressing <laughs> like that? Do you see CEOs wearing do-rags? And like you walk into Bank of America and everybody's wearing a suit. Not only that, but it's a lot of white males, right? And a lot of what professionalism, like if you look up in, in Google photos, if you look up an image of like professionalism, I put money, yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to look like somebody at Bank of America. You know what I mean? Super buttoned up, yeah. Like how, what, what, how did that impact your idea of what professionalism should look like or is? Yeah. Um, I, you know, it was really about like you had to fit a certain mold, which honestly I absolutely hated. And, you know, and also I worked in HR, so I couldn't even deviate if I wanted to be like rebellious, you know, because it, I always felt like it would threaten my job. And like, for instance, I wanted to, you know, try the different color hair and I wanted to maybe get a piercing like on my face and those things like that always stopped me. And even to this day, like I've now worked for nonprofits where, you know, the first time I met my HR director, she had purple hair and I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> <you're not? laughs> you know, this is me as like a, you know, like a, like the last three years. So now, what a, re what a rebel, <laughs> right? Well, now I'm like, you know, working for a nonprofit is so different. Like to your point about like the standard has been set by even like by the banking industry, like this is what professional means. But if you walk into a bank today and you get, you know, if you get helped by someone with purple hair, it's not going to make a difference with like the quality of their work and the quality of their service. Um, so like this arbitrary like standard that like, you know, this society has placed on what professional looks like, I think it's, it's about time that we start to dismantle it. And, you know, I've seen it happen a lot more in these like nonprofit or like startup environments, which I think are really, you know, setting the tone for like how, I mean, think about like Mark Zuckerberg who wears a t-shirt every day, like but he runs a multi-billion dollar corporation. So, I mean, we're redefining it. And, and I think that's a good thing because it's like, we shouldn't be judging people by their appearance. Um, we say that at like the, you know, our, like the very like superficial layer of our skin, but like even more superficial than that is like how we use our hair or like, you know, what clothes we wear. Like it shouldn't, there are some limits. I will admit, but still, like, <laughs> for the most part, I think that that's, that's an unnecessary filter that we need to place on people. I, I agree. I mean, the first time I saw someone at work with a tattoo, I was like, oh, does he know it's showing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what about? Tattoos and I used to like always hide them. And then I could imagine. No, you know, I'm not hiding them anymore. <laughs> what was that? What was that experience like when you, left this um this company culture which was like you know you have to stick to the mold and you started working for you know 
it may maybe the nonprofit that you're referencing and you saw somebody with like purple hair and they were like yeah yeah just just be yourself like do whatever you got to do where you were like this is a setup she just, <laughs> she's trying to set me up so she can fire me <laughs> yeah no I, I i honestly was very um it was a relief to see that you know cultures were evolving and you know especially because of the work that I do is always with that lens of like inclusion and diversity. Um, you know, I'm now starting to see like, you know, companies aren't, aren't just talking about it. They're walking, you know, they're, they're living it. So it's refreshing to see. And I think that's the example that we need to have more visible out there for people to, you know, know that like, it doesn't matter what you look like, if you have the skills and the intelligence and the, the, the will and the capacity to perform, you know, well in, in a certain role, then like you should be considered for that and not for what you look like. Um, so now that I see it, I really am just like happy and, and just, you know, I look, I, I look forward to seeing more and more examples like that. I love that. Was it, um, <laughs> was it still weird though, that first day when you didn't wear long sleeve to hide of your tattoo and you wore like a short sleeve? Like what was, what was that oh, feeling like too? <laughs> I used to work in Boston and um, I was part <laughs> of the, like the people and culture team. And I'm like sitting in my meetings, literally like, like wrist down. Like I won't, you know, won't like, you know, raise my arm or my hand because you could see the tattoo on my wrist. And so over time, I was just like, you forget about it. And then you're like, oh, wow, they probably saw it. And, you know, they didn't say anything. So like, it's probably okay. Um, and honestly, like, I would be like, the at this point, the tattoos make less of a shock to anyone than um, my birthmark on my on my face. Like, I don't know if you can tell, but I have a birthmark on my eye and it looks like I got punched. But, um, so now I feel like that's the thing that people look at instead of my tattoos. So it's almost like, okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's a better icebreaker in my opinion than, you know, just like, do I have tattoos or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so often we, we make up this story in our heads. I mean, some of these are real, right? Like we make up these stories because we've experienced something and we know someone's going to ask us about it. But other times you know, we make up these stories like, oh, if I raise my hand, they're going to see this and they're going to ask me about it or they're going to send me to HR. Whereas like someone saw it and may have complimented you like, oh, that's a nice one, mm -hmm. you know, or like, who's your artist, et cetera. But um, no, yeah, that, that's interesting. I'm, I'm always curious to hear about, you know, those experiences because I'm sure they are very nerve wracking. You know, you're just like, today's the day I'm going to be me. And then, <laughs> then you walk in and like, oh my God, what is it going to be like? So no, no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think it also depends on like, you know, the average age of like a company, <laughs> like that makes a huge difference. Like if you're working with, you know, millennials versus like these, you know, older, like, you know, boomer types, like they're going to have a different opinion about what is appropriate, what's not appropriate. And, you know, so it really is about like, well, what, what do you feel is acceptable? And if you're not getting reprimanded for it, then like, who cares what those people think? Um, you know, to some degree. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And tell me, tell me a little bit about the work that you do these days. You said that you, you do a lot of work around diversity inclusion. Like, how, how are you, you know, thinking about professionalism and diversity inclusion and, you know, how to bring that to life? Yeah. So, 
you know, I was a recruiter for about 12 years and I worked in for-profit and then nonprofit education. And um, eventually I made the transition into the tech space where I started to work for a nonprofit or really a social enterprise um, based in DC that's um, focused on removing barriers for, um, you know, a, a certain demographic of people that we call stars. Um, which is an acronym for scale through alternative routes. And so, you know, traditionally we think about um, how, you know, as a recruiter, as a hiring manager, like how you evaluate and assess talent is you tend to look at their resume, you tend to look at what college they attended and what degree they have. And the truth is that that's not the only way to evaluate and validate that someone has the right skills. And so, um, you know, this demographic of um, people who we call stars are people who don't have a four-year degree, but they perhaps, you know, earned their skills, their experience, all of their qualifications through these alternative methods, whether that be, uh, you know, a coding boot camp or just learning on the job or having military experience or even just being a stay-at-home mom. Like, you're managing a household. You can pretty much manage, you know, a, a project or a team. Like, you know, so that's- If you're, if you're managing like kids in this pandemic, you can run a whole business. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so the work that I do now is I, I work for, um, you know, the, the tech startup arm of an organization called Opportunity at Work. And we're building a, um, an online marketplace where um, employers can um, source talent that are specifically from this talent pool of stars, right? Because these are the stars that are being overlooked. They are, you know, being filtered out through traditional um, recruitment channels because they lack a four-year degree. And so the platform that we're, we're building is basically allowing them to be surfaced to the very top and to be able to be, um, you know, evaluated based on their skills and not their, their pedigree. Um, and so the, the ultimate mission is to be able to, you know, employ more stars because that's going to have a, a, like a domino effect on our, you know, on our economy. It's, you know, at the intersection of social justice, because, you know, there are so many people, the majority of um, stars, you know, are, are made up of Latinos and African Americans. So like, you know, if, if we are now saying that we want to be more of an inclusive and like, we want to dismantle um, the systemic racism and institutional racism, and like you know, we want to create more opportunities within the corporate spaces. Then you know, then they need to remove that four-year degree requirement because the talent is there. It's just the opportunity that's been lacking. Um, so yeah, that's that's the, the the kind of work that we're doing now, and you know, we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of interest, a lot of momentum, obviously, with, you know, where we are today with Black Lives Matter. And so there's definitely a lot more corporations that we're seeing that are like willing to put their money where their mouth is and, you know, actually open up these opportunities to stars. First of all, can you think of a better acronym? That shit <laughs> is fire. I <laughs> I wish I, I could take credit for it, but it's uh, our director of comms who who coined that term, and yeah, it's it, it's pretty dope. Yeah, it's dope, and it's funny how things come full circle, and that that was sort of like how we started the conversation as far as you know, baby to elderly person, but 
it's interesting, like when your story started and, you know, you're not having a college degree and it, it, in some ways being embarrassed about that and not wanting to share it and, you know, going through a bunch of different industries and now coming back to where you are now, giving back to people that essentially had similar, if not the same experiences as you, right? Um, and I think that's such a great way to like close this and ask you this final question. Um, you know, when you think about continuing to be your authentic self as you move forward, you know, what's one thing that just empowers and inspires you to continue being your authentic self? Wow, that one's deep. Um, one thing that inspires. Um, take your take your time. I can edit out the silence, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it, it comes back to this idea of achieving true social um, and racial justice, right? Because what we do today, how we conduct ourselves, what we place our values on, you know, what purpose we have is going to make the difference for the generations that follow us. Um, so I think about that and like, for instance, I was ashamed for the majority of my career for not having a four-year degree and feeling that I was like inadequate and that I was an imposter and that, you know, I was never going to achieve, you know, success um, because I was being overlooked for that one simple fact to now being able to own it and say like, you know what, I do have the skills and I can do this job and I should be given the opportunity and let me prove it to you because like I know that I can, um, you know, means that for many, many, many other people, they can now start to have more options, right? They can say like, you know what, college isn't for me. And I shouldn't be afraid of not pursuing a college degree if I think that I would do better or fare better by joining an apprenticeship program or by just following my heart to wherever it leads, you know, and not being ashamed about it. And not feel, and then also that on the on the opposite end of that, you know, for these employers, these corporations, for these like standards to be changed, so that like people aren't afraid and instead are still being considered or be, be given that opportunity. So I think that is my biggest motivator. Of just just to simply say like this is who I am. You know, I have a lot of things that I can offer. Um, you know, let's give each other that space and that opportunity to truly explore all of our talents and share our talents because that's only going to make us succeed as a greater whole. Um, and by limiting others' opportunities, like, you see where, where that's gotten us. So, you know, I think that um, that that's definitely, for me, I think, you know, as idealistic as it sounds, like, even... And you know, any progress is still progress. So if we remove a four-year degree requirement from a job listing, that, that means that like you now have a whole new talent pool like of people that you know weren't considered before that now like can you know can have an opportunity for economic mobility. So yeah, that's what I would say. 